Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Star Line by medical historian, TV host, and best-selling author. Her first book was The Butchering Art. Now she introduces us to The Facemaker. We welcome back our friend, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Lindsay, let's go beyond the mic. Your first hero, Joseph Lister, turned into, well, a villain for your second novel's hero. How did that discovery change the way you saw both these characters? Yeah, that's so true. I I came through this, uh, you know, halfway through my research, realized that Joseph Lister, who had introduced germ theory into medical practice in the 19th century, actually created some issues for Harold Gillies, who is the focus of my next book, The Facemaker. He is the pioneering surgeon who rebuilt soldiers' faces during the First World War. And what happened was that this new generation of surgeons, they were all brought up on antisepsis and aseptic techniques. And so when the First World War happens, a lot of these soldiers are getting hit in the face. They're getting hit elsewhere in their body. A lot of infections are setting in because you have this bacteria ridden mud being dragged through these wounds. And these surgeons just are not familiar with identifying these septic conditions anymore. And actually, in a lot of instances, these surgeons would hastily stitch up a soldier to stop the hemorrhaging. And in that sense, they were literally sealing up these men's fate because they were sealing in the infection. So I joked on Twitter that Joseph Lister, who's the hero, as you say, of The Butchering Art, my first book, sort of becomes this kind of villain (laughs) in the second book and creates all these problems for my hero in the second book, which is Harold Gillies. Growing up, my dad would always tell me when I skinned my knee, rub some dirt in it, move on. In (laughs) this case, the French soil could have been deadly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, infections were really a huge problem. And remember, this is before antibiotics. And so a lot of these men who are being hit in the face, which is the focus of what my book is on facial reconstruction, they have all kinds of problems going on because they didn't have great dental hygiene at that time. They already had infections probably in their mouth. Then they're getting hit in the face. They're losing part of their jaw. They're ending up in Harold Gillies care. And Gillies is having to unpick some of the work that was done closer to the front. He's literally having to open up these sutures, clean out the wounds. It was really challenging. And Gillies had to rebuild entire faces from scratch in some cases without any textbooks to guide him because this was all brand new. Dr. Harold Gillies restored faces using skin grafts, which was revolutionary at the time. How are some of his techniques he created? Are they still being used today? Yeah, I mean, Harold Gillies not only was creating different techniques that then become standardized, they, they become tried and tested. So plastic surgery predates the First World War. But attempts really at altering appearance in earlier periods focus on very small areas of the face, such as the ears or the nose. It's really when the First World War happens that there's this great need for facial reconstruction. And that's because men were burned, they were maimed, they were gassed. Before it was over, 280,000 men from France, Germany, and Britain alone needed some kind of facial reconstruction. So this really allowed plastic surgery to become modernized because you had this opportunity to try and test these new methods, as I said. So in addition to creating these new methods, some of which are still used today in plastic surgery, Gillies was able to just usher in this new era and establish principles that plastic surgeons will know today. For instance, never do today what you can reasonably do tomorrow. And a lot of times it's better to delay the surgical reconstruction if you can wait a little bit longer so that things can begin to heal. Gillies, before trying surgery, wanted a man's strength to be at its peak and specific attention was given to their diet. 
I never thought diet would be important for plastic surgery. Yes. Oh my gosh. These guys were coming out of the trenches, very depleted as it was. And of course, when you're going through that healing process, you need to keep your energy up. And so a lot of protein was, was needed. Again, there are photos in my book, which can be really difficult to look at, but I thought that these photos needed to be included because when these men were injured in the First World War, a lot of times they were hidden from the public. This was a time when losing a a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster. And so they were placed, for instance, on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them if they left the hospital. And it was a really isolating experience. So I felt that these men, their photos should be in the book, but they are difficult images to look at because they can be quite graphic. But when you see their photos, you will understand the extent of their injuries and just why the diet was so important. So at Gillies Hospital, I mean, they had to produce loads of eggs, for instance, as a source of protein. But feeding these soldiers was also a challenge because if you don't have a jaw, it could be very difficult to eat. And so they had to come up with all these creative solutions just to keep these men alive so that they can live long enough to get through the reconstructive process. Now, both you and Gillies went to Oxford. How easy was it to do research on him? Well, actually, Gillies went to Cambridge. I have to say that because Cambridge would be very upset with me if, if, I, <laughs> if I take claim to them. But it is essentially the same university, which I'll probably also get in trouble saying on some yes. level. And for people listening who might be confused, I still have this very Chicago accent. They couldn't beat it out of me in Oxford. And I've been in the UK for 20 years, but I'm still hanging on to it. In terms of the records, a lot of his records are in London, the patient records, but they were really sometimes difficult to get hold of because there's a lot of patient confidentiality laws still in Britain around these these case files. So I had to be very careful navigating this. In some cases, I had to even prove that these men were dead, which, I mean, can you imagine if I had found out that one of these, he's 140 years old and he's still alive? You know, it was it was a wild kind of process as a medical historian to get hold of all this material. And the other challenge, I think, with this book was that there was there's just so much about World War One. There's so many letters there's so many diaries, which is great. But a lot of what I try to do is not overwhelm the reader. So I'm really kind of getting rid of stuff, trying to find the pulse of the story. So you're trying to get to the meat of the story. People don't understand what you do and the importance yeah. of your job. Most of the time people say, that's a real job. Exactly. How have you transform the image of what a medical historian actually does? Well, I have to remind people, I'm Dr. Lindsay Viteris, but I am not the kind of doctor who can save your life. But I can tell you how doctors used to try to save people's lives in the past. I do have a PhD in the history of science and medicine, but I like to call myself these days a storyteller. And the books that I write, you don't have to know anything about history. You don't have to know anything about World War I, medicine, anything. Hopefully you can become immersed in that story that I tell. I think people who don't even like history might like medical history because we all know what it's like to be sick, especially since we've lived through a pandemic. And I think it's very relatable in a way that maybe political history isn't relatable, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I can tell you what it was like if you had a toothache in 1792, or what would you do if you had to have your leg amputated in 1841? So that's what I do as a medical historian. And I do think history is really important, but I also think that it can be fun and entertaining. And so I hope, again, that people just feel really immersed in the world of the face maker and World War One. Perhaps it's a war you hadn't even really given much thought, but I drop you right into the trenches, right from page one. And I tell you what it smelled like, what it looked like, what it was like to lay on the battlefield without a jaw, unable to scream for three days. So that's really what I set out to do with this book. So as a medical historian, COVID was predictable for you. (laughs) 
it it was predictable and not predictable. I remember when it started to happen. In fact, we talked kind of when things were starting to get a little bit funny. I had my TV show on the Smithsonian channel was just about to come out. And I remember saying to my husband, oh, you know, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. And then I said, but as a medical historian, I know that the first phase of a pandemic is denial. And then we kind of nervously laughed and it was like, oh, maybe we're in the denial phase. And we definitely were sort of in the denial phase. And I think that, you know, my experience living in the UK could might have been quite different to what people in America were experiencing because we had these really severe lockdowns. We couldn't leave our surrounding area or we would get ticketed. So I've become really socially awkward creature through this the last two and a half years. And I have to head off on a book tour in the US. It's going to be interesting interacting with people again, but I'm looking forward to it. Now, you might be a friend, but I'm not going to let you get past <laughs> it. It's time for the rocking eight. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this part. <laughs> so we're talking with Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, author of The Face Maker Beyond the Mic. And it's time for eight random questions answered with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Have you ever had the chicken pox? I have when I was a child. Yep. Lindsay, what's the oddest job you ever took on to make money? Oh gosh. Um, I mean, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> Telling these weird stories. <laughs> what is really complicated about your life? You know, just just the the essence of writing the books, I think, is complicated. But I love everything I do, so there's there's not too much complication. Book tours are complicated. If you ever discovered a brand new breed of dinosaur, what would you name it? Ooh, um, Purpleosaurus. <laughs> I'm wearing purple, and I'm not very imaginative. Yes, you are wearing purple. What movie do you wish life was more like? That's a good one. Um, oh, God. Oh, I'm, I'm such a nerd. Now I got to think about a movie I've watched. I was going to say Batman. That's terrible. Why would I want life to be like? <laughs> I don't know why that would. That was one of the last movies I watched. So I guess that's my answer. It's the first thing that came to my mind. And being from Chicago, Gotham, you know, it all has parallels. <laughs> Which job would you want if you could have any? Believe it or not. I'm doing it right now. I'm a storyteller. It's not what I do. It's who I am. I can't imagine doing anything else. What's your favorite place in Bloomington, Illinois? In Bloomington, Illinois? Oh, um, probably the dugout in Illinois Wesleyan University where they serve this buffalo chicken <laughs> sandwich when I was an undergraduate. At Illinois Wesleyan, I always love to eat that sandwich. And I really miss buffalo wings and things like that because they don't have that in the UK. So that that's where my favorite place would be. <laughs> now, you live in London. So if you could rule the country, Diamond Jubilee going on right now, if there would be Queen Lindsay, what would be your first decree? Oh, gosh. If I became a royal, I think my first decree would be to banish the monarchy because <laughs> I really think it's a stupid waste of taxpayer dollars. Dollars. I bet there's a lot of Americans who will disagree with this. But remember, I'm paying really high taxes in the UK, and those people have too high of a budget for a wardrobe, in my opinion. If you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Good Pods app. It's time for the back half with our friend, author of The Facemaker, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, Beyond the Mic. Lindsay, during World War I, Harold Gillies was trying to give people dignity so they mm -hmm. could walk down a street without being pointed out and pointed at and said, hey, monster. Yes. The initial masks that he designed and made 
had the ability of flaking off. So it wasn't the perfect thing. He was trying to make them feel more human. Now plastic surgery is being used. So people point (laughs) at them. How does this dichotomy of these two historical times make you feel? Mm. Well, you know, I think, so I do talk about at the very end of the book, Harold Gillies after the war continued to do reconstructive surgery on these soldiers because war is only over for the dead, as that saying goes. Um, So these men would have surgery long after the guns fell silent on the Western Front. But he also moved into the cosmetic realm because at that time, there was no such thing really as plastic surgery as a subspecialty. And so he had to make money. So he moves into the cosmetic realm. And he really loves the challenges that brings as well. He says that reconstructive surgery is about returning something to normal, whereas cosmetic surgery is about surpassing the normal. And I don't think, though, that he could have sort of guessed at the the huge industry it became. But we have to remember that although cosmetic surgery now dominates, reconstructive surgery is still a very vital part of plastic surgery. And I end the book by talking about face transplants, which I think if Gillies had lived, he would have been really fascinated with the ability to literally transplant somebody else's face onto another person. But, you know, I'm not really, there's a bigger conversation, I think, to be had about what plastic surgery is today and and the influence of, for instance, Instagram on a younger generation wanting to alter their appearance. But Gillies himself had no issue with people wanting to take control of their identities and get plastic surgery themselves. He always felt that if somebody was uncomfortable with the way they looked, he could provide a service and that he could bring happiness to that person in the same way that he might bring happiness to someone who needed their entire face reconstructed because they were wounded during the war. So, Lindsay, have you ever considered plastic surgery? I have not. I mean, I think every you know, person on some level thinks about it. When I was 13 years old, I actually, I went to the doctor with my grandmother and my doctor was like really old fashioned. And she said to my grandmother that I should get my nose done when I was older. And I had never even thought about my nose. Now I never did get it done. And my face actually changed quite a bit as I got older. So I think again, you know, when you're younger, you're really insecure. And this is where I worry about new generations, you know, on Instagram with all these filters and it could really knock your confidence, but your face and your body changes as you get older. And of course I just turned 40. So everything's changing again. And, you know, that's just part of the process, but I have no issues with people, you know, wanting to do that. And I think that it's all by degrees, right? you know, if you whiten your teeth or if lighten your hair, these are all part of like a cosmetic altering of your appearance. Growing up in Mount Prospect, graduated from Illinois Wesleyan, how did your time in Chicago help you and your passion for science? Well, I was really lucky. My parents got divorced when I was four and my mom and my brother and I actually ended up moving in with my grandparents. And my grandfather was a professor at Northwestern University. So he really cultivated that that love of, of science and education. He was he actually taught journalism. So he was always taking his red pen and, and marking up my essays. And so I think that kind of made me a very paranoid and careful writer in the end. So I always say that the divorce was really lucky in that sense because I was exposed to this whole academic world that I might not otherwise have been exposed to. And I always was a weird kid. I used to drag my grandmother from cemetery to cemetery hunting ghosts. And, you know, I was, I was always a little bit interested in the macabre, but I think in the end, I was really interested in the people who lived and died in the past. And I wanted to know more about that world. I remember the Chicago science museum. There was, I don't even know if it's still there, but there used to be like an olden times, by the way, olden times is a real historical era that is 
but it was, it was called like the olden times street and you can walk down it. And I would walk down it with my grandma and she would point to like the theater that looked like the theater that she went to as a kid. And you just need a penny to get in. And it just always caught fire to my imagination. And so I, I was always in love with the past. Lindsay, how has this research of the book that you've done given you a greater appreciation for the greatest generation? I mean, I think, you know, my grandfather fought, both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. One of them didn't really think it was appropriate to talk about, especially with a girl, even though I did ask him questions. My grandfather, who was the professor, he always wanted to talk about it, but recognized I was a little bit young at the time. And so I never got the opportunity to kind of fully flesh that out. I do remember my my grandfather saying, look, I... I have a Luger in the house. He told me this when I was like 12. What? He said, I have this, I have this German Luger. It's probably very valuable. And anyway, when he died, I said to my grandma, there's a Luger in the house. My grandma's like, no, there isn't. You know, my grandma thought a Luger was like a giant rifle. So several years after I told her, she finds this German Luger in, in a shoebox and she brings it down the stairs and she's like waving this thing. And she's like, I don't even know if it's loaded, you know? So that was interesting uh, experience. But in my grandmother's house, she always had so much history. I mean, that generation that lived through the great depression, they kept everything. And so I got to touch history. And I think that's so important. If you can go to museums and if you can interact with history, and preserve it. My grandma's still alive. She's 92. But she moved in with my mom recently and I went through her house and I was like, what should I, what should I take? You know, what can I take? Cause there's so much stuff. And I was opening drawers and I found my grandfather's discharge papers from the war. And I took those and I just think it's important. I mean, you can people can't see cause they're listening, but you can see, like, I have all these objects behind me and I have a world war one hat. And I just think it's really important that people can see and interact with history because it really brings it to life. So my grandparents taught me that love of history and, and preserving it. And I think that a lot of people my age have lost interest in preserving objects from those those past generations, unfortunately. What thing of yours would you want preserved for history? Oh, that's such a good question. Something of mine that I would want preserved. I guess, you know, I have all kinds of, I mean, I have a, a whole collection of rings. That sounds really weird, but they're really old rings. Like the one I just bought recently, was a mourning ring that was meant to commemorate a death. And it was 17, I believe it was 1791. And it has the man's name on it and the death date. And then you flip the, uh, the center stone and it has the woman's name on it. So it's a husband and wife. And I love that I am, you know, the curator of this, this little piece of history and I, and I wear it on my hand. So all of the things that I've sort of collected that actually belong to the faraway past, I would love that to also, you know, continue to fall into the hands of people who love this, these kinds of objects and this kind of history. Lindsay, your initial book was shortlisted for many prizes. Millions of people have heard you on podcasts. Joe Rogan read your blog. What gives you joy about researching and writing and being able to share these stories so they're not lost? I mean, I, it's great to be shortlisted and win book prizes, but in a way, I kind of hate them because I don't like being pitted against other writers. It's it's stressful. It also feels kind of arbitrary, like who's the best, you know, out of like these five books or whatever. It is an honor, but what I really love is just meeting people at these book events and getting them interested. I gave a talk at Illinois Wesleyan a couple years back, went back to my alma mater. I had a huge, you know, hundreds of people were there. It took me 
almost two hours to sign. And at the end, this really big guy comes up to me and I said, oh, are you a a football player here? And he said, yeah. He goes, you know, I was told I was going to get extra credit for coming, but then I thought the book sounded kind of cool. And I thought, yes, I got the football player to stand in line for two hours to buy a book about Joseph Lister and Victorian surgery. So that delights me. If I could get someone excited who never thought about this and, and just, you know, kind of exceed their expectations about how entertaining and enjoyable this kind of history can be, then I feel like I've done a really good job. Finding you online is easy if you search dissection, embalming, rotting corpse, or human meat. (laughs) Anything gross, (laughs) medically. (laughs) With such an unusual passion for your work, how odd are your fans? (laughs) They are odd, but I love them. I mean, they always have such great stories. And you know what? They're all so fiercely loyal. They will fly, you know, across the country to come to my events, which I always find a little bit embarrassing because I don't feel like it's worth it to come out to these events. But it's, it's lovely to see them. And I love answering their questions. And I always say that, you know, they, they guide me as much as I guide them. They'll ask me questions that will send me down rabbit holes. And I'll think, gosh, I didn't even know, you know, uh, the answer to that. And so it sends me on these delightful sideways and I and I find new book projects in fact my next book is going to be on Joseph Bell, who is the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. He was Conan Doyle's professor, and it's going to be this sort of romp through Victorian forensics and crime in the 19th century. So I'm very excited about that one, too. What's one thing people don't know about you that would shock them? <sighs> um, gosh, nothing really. I feel like I feel like I'm actually an introvert. That's, that could be quite shocking. I mean, going on tours and stuff, like I, I basically get back home and I just sort of collapse and, and go into a cave for, for weeks. I love meeting people and going out there and bringing that energy and stuff, but I feel, I find it really draining. And I think even some of my close friends don't believe this when I say that I'm like, I'm an introvert, but I think a lot of writers have to be that way. You have to spend a lot of time alone with your thoughts and with your words in order to craft that story. And so I don't mind being alone. And I, and I quite, like it. And I, I thrive in that space as well. Your husband, Adrian, is a cartoonist. What drew you to him? I mean, <laughs> what made you say, yeah, that guy? <laughs> You're like that guy who does those weird, yeah, those weird caricatures. Um, it's funny because he contacted me on Twitter a- about some other project and we met in London and he's so funny. We're actually, our, next year, we have a book coming out called Scourge, which is a children's book. And we sold this under the name Scourge before the pandemic. So I have no idea if they're going to change that title, but it's called Scourge and it's history's six deadliest diseases and the things that doctors tried to do. And it's going to be highly illustrated. You know, it's just really great to be with someone who's creative, who understands that kind of energy. And I love his caricatures. I mean, honestly, guys, Adrian Teal, check out his stuff because it's pretty wild. He just did one on Indiana Jones um, in the last crusade for, for my birthday. And it's, it's like poster size and it's just brilliant. So give them his Twitter handle, give them a little, you know, publicize your hub. Yeah. It's Adrian, it's Adrian Teal. It's very easy to spell. And I'm always retweeting his stuff too. He did a, another one for me, Beetlejuice, and we got it all framed and it's just, it's fun. It's delightful. You know, I also, he ruins faces for me because I'll say, you know, oh, what, what about this handsome actor? What is it about his face? So I'll use the example of Will Smith, who's a, who's a bit in the doghouse right now. But a couple of years back, I said, oh, Will Smith's a good looking guy. You know, what, what about his face? And, and instantly Adrian says his eyes are too far apart. And then he'll draw it for me and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I never saw it that way. But he doesn't think that he's making fun of faces, that he's making people look more like themselves than they are. So what is it about someone's face that makes them look like them? And that's what he tries to pull out in his caricatures. I've seen his work and I'm thinking, hey, for him to draw me, I mean... 
there's two kinds of people, people who love it and people who hate it. I, I personally love it. And, I, and he has caricature me. What are they going to pull out? Yeah, I know. I mean, and you know, like when he meets people, like it's actually the longer he knows somebody, the harder it is to caricature them because it's all about first impressions. So you got to get it right out of the gate. Like, what is it that stands out about their face? But if he knows you too well, it's a, it's more difficult task. How did he draw you? He did, He drew me before we even met. And it was, it's, it's, I'll have to pull it out and tweet it at some point. But it's, what was funny was I sent it to my family and they said instantly, they're like, oh, it looks like your aunt Sharon. And Adrian said, he gets this a lot. Like people will not see a family resemblance. He'll do the caricature. And then they'll say, oh my gosh, I suddenly see, you know, they have the same cheekbones or they have the same. So that's kind of a delightful thing. I think he nailed it. My hair is a little bit longer than when he first did the caricature, but it was, it was good fun. And it, it, I still met up with him for the drink. So it didn't turn me off enough. <laughs> Gillies gave everything to his patients. All he had till he had a stroke during a surgery at the age of 78. Yes. What are your thoughts on his never ending quest to heal and humanize those who were in pain and suffering? I think that he has an incredible legacy, but one that a lot of people don't know. And so I hope that I've sort of resurrected this story. A lot of people have asked me, is this about the guinea pig club? The guinea pig club was World War II. It was these burn pilots that were operated on by Archibald McIndoe, who happened to be Gilly's cousin. And it was Gilly's who introduced McIndoe to the strange art of plastic surgery. So Gilly's legacy, you know, as you say, he gave back these men their identities. He mended their spirits, not just their faces. And I hope that he gets to live again through the face maker. What do you want to tell a young woman? to motivate her to follow you down your path? You know, it's it's hard because, again, I'm, I consider myself a storyteller and a creative person. And, and when you are a writer, you really have to find your own voice. But I always tell people, you know, writing for money is a mugs game. You have to be passionate first. And that's where you have to speak from a place of passion. I love medical history. I came out of Oxford feeling intellectually burnt out. I started this blog called The Surgeon's Apprentice, and I did it just out of joy. I just wanted to share these stories and my audience found me. So anybody who wants to do what I'm doing, just make sure it's an authentic passion that you have for whatever you're writing about and your audience will find you. It's time for One Big Question with Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, author of the book, The Facemaker, Beyond the Mic. You're all big questions. <laughs> There's no small talk. It's all, it's all big. <laughs> Lindsay, you've survived a failed marriage, almost being deported, people ignoring your work. Now you have a TV show, a best-selling book, on the way to a second best-selling book, and considered one of the tops in your field. How has your resiliency grown through these years? I mean, how have you grown even though you've had such incredible failure? Oh, that's such a great question. And you remember all of that as well. Yeah, I went through a terrible divorce in 2015 and I was facing deportation from the UK. It was really horrific. And I ended up getting my citizenship. I sold the butchering art off the back of it. I mean, some of it was just purely a survival game. I, I, I couldn't work because they had taken my passport. So the only thing I could do was write. I started to develop this book, but I had always wanted to be a writer. So it was kind of like the push I needed. And I definitely think that failure is an important teacher and something that we don't talk about enough. I mean, even with Gilly's story in The Facemaker, he fails often. And this teaches him valuable lessons that help him help his patients later on. And certainly for me, I think my failure has given me a lot of empathy. You know, I have a lot of time for people who are going through tough periods. 
I felt very alone. I felt like the world was ending. I thought I was never going to get out of the situation. So for me, it's just been a real delight to, to come into this new life. It's been like a rebirth and um, it's, it's been wonderful to enjoy this kind of success. Long may it last and, and to reach those readers, as I said. Where can people find you? They can find me under Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, uh, Dr. Lindsay Fitz on Twitter. I mean, everywhere. Just if you Google my name, you can't escape me and you may regret it <laughs> because my content can be quite graphic, but hopefully you'll come away a little bit more enlightened about what it was actually like to live in the past. She has rings from the 17th century, loves that buffalo chicken wings and wants you to read The Face Maker. We thank our friend, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Beyond the Mic.